0: Good evening ladies and gentlemen, whilst our speakers are being mic'd up, I'm going to give a very brief introduction to the evening. I'm Danny Nobis, I'm the chair of the Freud Museum, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you all to uh, the first event in our autumn series. Uh, because the event was oversubscribed, we had to move it away from the actual museum to the Anna Freud Center, but I, I hope you will still feel close enough to... Freud's last home to uh, feel imbued by by his spirit. We, we have a really exciting uh, series of events this uh, this autumn, and uh, I'm, I'm I'm sure you've all looked at the website, but it's it's worth uh, being a regular visit to uh, the events and conferences site because we keep on adding events. Um, as the uh, as the term progresses, um, and uh, so tonight is, uh, is 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 the start of the autumn uh, program, and I'm absolutely delighted to uh, to welcome Adam Phillips and uh, and Lisa Abignanese. Um Lisa will will do a full introduction of uh, of Adam, uh, but he probably doesn't need an introduction, uh, given given how well known a figure he is. Uh, not just in the world of uh, of psychoanalysis, but uh, but in, in in the world of, of of culture, he's been called the Emerson of our time, the uh, the greatest pro stylist, and uh, rumour has it that Philipsian is about to enter the Oxford English Dictionary, um, nice very world. very nice soon. Word. Excuse your me. Um, <laughs> I know it's your word, Lisa. So. Uh, <laughs> Thanks. if if it does enter you should get some credit for it as as the inventor of uh, of this adjective um, adam is going to uh, i'm not going to take you through all his books there's uh, i think it's about 20 uh, in all uh, probably more than that um, but his latest volume is uh, is called becoming freud the making of a psychoanalyst uh, to my own shame and embarrassment, I have to say that I haven't read it yet, but, but I'm about to read it, if only because I'm, I'm going to do what Lisa is doing tonight at the Cheltenham Literature Festival on the 11th of October, so I have a very good reason for uh, for reading it. Adam's going to be in conversation with Lisa Appignanesi, who's a former chair of uh, the Freud Museum, but who's also... Uh, a prize-winning novelist, broadcaster, and cultural commentator. Um, I'm not going to take you through all her books uh, either because that would take me too long. There's there's, there's so many of them. Uh, But she is the author, with John Forrester, of course, of um, this landmark volume called Freud's uh, Women. She is also the author, most recently, of uh, Trials of Passion, which we actually featured at the museum uh, before the summer and, and, indeed, a great many other books. So without any further ado, please welcome Adam Phillips and Lisa. Uh, Thank you.
1: Thank you, Danny. Well, it's, it's a very great pleasure to be here this evening and to be here with Adam Phillips, um, who I think is the writer, the contemporary writer on psychoanalysis, a word I can't say tonight because I'm going to have a lot of slips. This is the first. Um, who has perhaps inspired, provoked... Um, made me want to be imitative without being able to, of anyone writing, probably not only within psychoanalysis, but but um, in the wider sphere of our contemporary culture. Um, and although I know Adam quite well, I'm terrified of interviewing him or having a conversation with him, although we have done this many times before. But Adam, <laughs> nonetheless, here we are, and today we're going to talk about becoming Freud, and Um, Since Danny has done the formal introduction, I really want to say to you, okay, Becoming Freud, this is the second proper name that is featured on the title of your books, and there have been many wonderful ones of them. The first was Winnicott, and Winnicott didn't take um, a present participle (laughs) with him. And maybe we could just begin by unraveling why um, biography is so difficult Um, as a literary form for you, or also something that that makes you want to reflect more about the form um, that you're using than most other kinds of writing do. And um, then perhaps, since I've noted down all these quotations from Freud which show that he too is inimical to the form for reasons we can try and untangle. Um, why it is it that you undertook this project, and why and how it might have been different from the mm. other proper name in your mm. repertoire?
2: I <clears throat> I, it's not a book I would have initiated or it would have crossed my mind to write. I was invited to do it, and when I was invited to do it, I was curious about what it would be like to write... A biography of Freud, but also what it would be like to write a biography of Freud given his own explicit misgivings about biography. Um, so the project interested me. My misgivings about it were that what I love about writing is that you make it up as you go along, that one sentence leads to another. And for me, the problem of writing a biography is that there are facts. there are It's already plotted in some fundamental sense. And for me, that was a real Limitation, not because I've got anything against that. It's just not the way I write. Um, but I've read a lot of biographies, and I love biographies. And I think almost everything Freud said about biography is true. So I thought it'd be interesting to see what could be done in the light of all that. I'd also recently edited the Freud translations, so I felt as though I I couldn't remotely remember it all. In fact hardly any of it, but I'd recently immersed myself in a lot of those Freudian texts again. So I felt familiar-ish with the work. So I I thought it would be an an interesting opportunity to see what had come of all that. The other bit that was, for me, very tempting was that, which wouldn't otherwise have been, which is that (coughs) the book is in a series called Jewish Lives. Apparently the series was originally called Great Jewish Lives, even worse. But They changed it to Jewish lives. And on the one hand, I thought, well, this is so preemptive. Obviously, because in and of itself, that may not be a defining characteristic for any given person. But what it was for me was an opportunity to find out about Jews in Middle Europe in the middle of the 19th century and the turn of the century. So there was an element of... Though, I wanted to read books about that mm-hmm. and see what that was like so it was a combination of all those things in a way um, and it, but it was essentially an experiment, a writing experiment. I, 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 w-
1: I want to tease out a little bit about Freud's own objections to biography and where you and he may come together in this and uh, may not, may differ mm-hmm. and as you quote and it's a quote that's well known but I'll just read it um, he wrote to Arnold Zweig in 1936 um, to be a biographer, you must tie yourself up in lies, concealments, hypocrisies, false colorings, and even in hiding a lack of understanding. For biographical truth is not to be had, and if it were to be had, we could not use it. I mean, do, do you agree with that, no, and then why? No,
2: no. I mean, it's obvious that Freud protests too much here, and, I, and I, in the book I say, as you know, that Freud is using his misgivings about biography as an attempt to define what psychoanalysis is and differentiate it. So I think that's the main point. I think that Freud, it's a bit like the thing, why was Freud interested at all in whether Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare, say? And, you know, there must be sort of a boring answer to that, which is Freud was interested in the fact that people are not the authors that we think they are, to speak. Um, But I think Freud, as a younger man, as I write in the book, was very, very keen on concealing his tracks for reasons I don't entirely understand. Do you want to say something about that? No,
1: no, go ahead. I'll
2: And that, and that. So there's that fact, and that as a young man, he says, and again, I quote this letter to his wife, that he wants to make sure that the biographers have a very bad time. Well, this is an amazingly grandiose thought, age sort of. 30 whatever, because the assumption, of course, there will be biographers. But as it turned out, he was right. But nevertheless, he's obviously imagined people being interested in writing his biography. That's part of his sense of himself. And that in itself, I think, is very interesting. Then all these reiterated misgivings, I think, are a combination of a very interesting critique of what's going on in biography and an anxiety that um, psychoanalysis might be low-key biography. Or informal biography. And Do you think
1: it is? I well, mean where where well, just where is there a coming together and
2: teasing well, apart of the two? As kids? you know, this is a very very big question, um, and I can't. That's how I, we like them. <laughs> I can't answer this with any kind of. I was going to say comprehension with comprehensiveness. It's clear that psychoanalysis, in a sense, trades in so-called biographical truths, um, but it seems to me one of the things that psychoanalysis doesn't do, or the psychoanalysis that I value doesn't do, is fix a person in a story about their lives. That in a way, the psychoanalysis that I would value would be suspicious of somebody's wish to be, as it were, the subject of their own biography. That the biographical, the the attempt to fix oneself in a known story about oneself, which is what a biography inevitably does, except by somebody else, would would itself be symptomatic of something. So we can't We can't as easily say to the biographer, and and you wouldn't want to in this sort of language, but um, this is really a symptomatic text. You need this biographical subject to be something for you, which doesn't mean you've overridden all the facts or it's complete disfiguring, but nevertheless, it's a project of the biographer. It's about the biographer's desire. Well, the the crucial and obvious difference with psychoanalysis is that it's a conversation, not a unilateral description. And that is the difference that makes all the difference.
1: Okay, I just wa- I just wanted to say a little bit more. You to say a little bit more about this because I think it's actually quite important in in terms of the wider culture. I mean, there is a sense that Freud, in denying the biographer any possibility of access to truth, is actually trying to hide things mm. about himself. It's it's like a provocation to people to say, "Come and find me. I'm hiding." Mm. Um, you know, much as the kinds of games that may indeed go on in psychoanalysis mm. and in life. But do you think that that is the case? Do you think he's hiding or do you think he actually has a kind of, um, unwillingness to be pinned down rather than well, somebody in who's In a way,
2: it would be strange if it was the case because Freud's assumption is that we can't help but hide. It's not as though we've got a exactly. choice about this. So that it's not as though if you, um, disparage biography, you're saying, straightforwardly, the problem with biographers or biographies is they're full of lies because the assumption of psychoanalysis is not that people are in some malicious intentional way lying but people are needing to deceive themselves to protect themselves. So that I think this is why in a way I think it's interesting that Freud makes a meal of the truth question rather than the telling stories question when it comes to biography because he's saying um, it's as though biographies are liars Whereas in the context of psychoanalysis, Freud wouldn't talk about liars in that way. So it's clear that the biographer as a generic figure is being in some sense demonized and is carrying something that Freud, if, if you were to think psychoanalytically, is, is carrying something that Freud wants to expel and then attack. And I imagine it's something to do with a fantasy of an omniscient account about another life, that Freud's protecting the idea that lives are actually unknowable or knowable to a limited extent and with purposes in mind
1: okay I mean I I just wanted to to clarify that because it seems to me it's the tabloid question which is if you don't want anyone to write about you that means you've got a lot to hide there's dirt under the table it's very
2: strange isn't it that that the prejudice is that way around because you could think people could be thinking people are hiding their virtues from the public
1: nobody hides their virtues even if they
2: think they have them this is is the assumption (laughs) the assumption that you would only hide bad things well that in itself is very mysterious But that's from
1: Freud's time when the tabloid Mm. press emerged. Mm. Although the Freie press was a mixture of if you like, gossip plus literary Mm. stuff. Mm. It was still that kind of impetus. There was still the desire to find out what is being hidden.
2: Well, the project of unmasking or the the project of demystifying or the project of character assassination could be the very thing in a way that psychoanalysis at least should be countering. And uh,
1: I think you do do that in this book, which is a kind of Biography, in a way, despite yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So let's let's think about the way you've structured this biography because mm-hmm. I think that's very interesting too. I mean, well, tell us about it. I'm not. I shouldn't be telling it for you. But when
2: you say that, did you ever thought about it particularly?
1: Well, I I love this because each section um, actually takes. Let's go through them. Takes not only a chronological aspect of the development of a life, but actually also a kind, almost a kind of cultural aspect, a uh, cultural stroke, historical aspect. So you begin with the uh, chapter about biography, mm. about the making of biography, and then you move on to um, Freud from the beginning, which is Freud's childhood, which, of course, is the most intractable material mm. for mm. a biographer. Mm. And what you do with that is actually... Well, tell us what you do with that. I mean, how do you well, uncover Freud's childhood? I don't know why I'm saying I should be saying it. I mean, what, what you're attempting to do is to look at his roots, his origins, and the whole process of migrating from yeah. um, Moravia to Vienna, from childhood to adulthood, well, the, from the, Jewishness to something but else. But the one
2: thing that one is inevitably contending with here is the irony of writing about the childhood of the person who re childhood in a way that made it integral to one's life story. And so it was an opportunity. I very much wanted to write a biography which had no original research in it. So that it would be very clear the way in which, at least this book, but books are written because other people have written books, if you see what I mean. Um, so obviously I reread all the biographies. Um, and I wanted to see really what people had done with the documented childhood memories, which aren't the only ones that I had, and what people did with the fact that Freud gave us a way of understanding childhood memories that made it impossible to understand them, except in psychoanalysis. And if you took that for granted, what you then did, well, what you then do is speculate. Something else you could do. Um, but it just it reveals how conjectural and tentative biography has to be. Um, so I was really interested in um, seeing, having made it explicit that the biography is very, from a psychotic point of view, is very much more to do with the desire of the biographer. Without saying, this is all about me...
1: We'll talk about that later. We
2: will. (laughs) Um, But this book is inevitably, as every biography is, partly about the biographer. In the light of that fact, I've selected, out of quite a small repertoire of of documented childhood memories... These ones, and I've made something of it, and I've said that. Now I don't think that that's sort a of reflexive self-consciousness necessarily is very illuminating, but it has to be made explicit that these are interpretations based partly on Freud, partly on me, partly on me and Freud, and so on. The question is what you can deduce in a in a language that says that childhood informs everything and predicts nothing, which is I think in a way the, one of the best things psychoanalysis about childhood. Um, oh, sorry,
1: childhood informs everything. Everything and predicts nothing. And predicts nothing.
2: Okay. Um, so that. You're writing the biography retrospectively. We know, unlike the young Freud, what happened to him. But of course, we don't know what happened to Freud from Freud's point of view. But we do know what we think of as the story. So I can't help writing this retrospectively, even though he's living it prospectively. And I can't help writing it if I'm writing it. So it's made with words. Um, I stuck to the chronology because, well, for two reasons. One is I had actually a very, very good... Conversation with my editor at Yale, because I started writing this book and I thought I can't write this book. It's not the kind of book I want to write. And I said, "Do I have to write a more or less traditional biography?" And she said to me, "I want the readers just to have the experience of biography." That was a great phrase. And I thought then I could do it. So then I just sort of carried on as I was doing it. Um, and I thought, obviously, it has to be chronological. It has to have all some of, the, of Freud's misgivings about chronology. It has to be um, scrupulous about the facts but in the full knowledge that I as a biographer and a person and a psychoanalytic person can make mistakes. other no, words, not seamless. Um, so the book's not the kind of paranoid product that would say this book is beyond criticism, factually. You know, I may have said that you had the wrong number of children. I did it as well as I could. Um, but... But I wanted to incorporate all that stuff in a biography without it either being too pretentious or too naff. That okay. was the project.
1: Okay. Um, but let's go back to this childhood and the way you've actually used it, because it seems to me each of these sections, which are sections of a life, um, are also ways of for you to think about the making of psychoanalysis yeah. and your yeah. particular vision mm. of psychoanalysis. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where I think, you know, you inflect it differently mm. than another biographer mm. might. We, as I say, we'll talk about that later. But, but what you want to make of the childhood is it's the scene of the basis for an immigration. Yeah. And um, you make of the child the paradigm, if you like, of the immigrant. Mm. And that serves you in two ways. It serves you in terms of Freud's Jewishness as an immigrant into a, a <coughs> Christian culture. Mm. Uh, from the homeland of the Jewish family, if you like, um, and also for the making of psychoanalysis as something which looks mm. at childhood and the way it shapes a life or misshapes a life mm. or doesn't shape a life, but, mm. but it puts it on the table. So tell us about psychoanalysis as immigration and Freud as an immigrant. Just elaborate it. Well,
2: it it struck me, two things struck me. One was that Freud, Freud's life, early life, there was considerable amount of migration in it. He ended up in Vienna but of course he ended up as a resident alien in Vienna as a Jew Um, it seemed to me that psychoanalysis had a lot to say about people not knowing where they are, not understanding what was going on um, being the recipients of what Laplanche calls enigmatic messages um, and of people talking on their behalf now that's true of children and immigrants Uh, It seemed to me that, and this may be, this thought might be a function of the times we're actually living in, in which there's, of course, more immigration than ever before, that if psychoanalysis was any kind of science, you know, with an adjective attached to it, it was an immigrant science. That is to say, it was a very good description of what it is like to live in a world that you didn't make. Now, of course, nobody lives in a world they made, but some people have the illusion that they live in a world they made because they might have lived somewhere for a very long time. So they then have the constellations of locale and of a family history and so on. Um, So it seemed to me that that was the experience of every child and some people, and that these things might have run together in Freud's mind, um, and that what he was doing was in psychoanalysis. Psychoanalysis, you could say, spoke at least initially to the casualties of assimilation, of adaptation. Um, the people who, um, no, I don't think this is true, but I was going to say, the people who might find it most difficult to adapt to the culture might be immigrants. It may not be true. Um, nevertheless, everybody struggles <coughs> to adapt to the family that they that they grew up in. And it seemed to me that was the model, or that was the basic picture that Freud had, and it seemed then that that led on to a question about, you know, th- the old question looked at from a different point of view, which is what then are the aims of psychoanalysis, which become then linked to what are the aims of the immigrant, not generically, because obviously every immigrant is different, but that what's the relationship between, say, um, collusion and coll- collaboration, or um, assimilation and individuation between um, submitting to something and cooperating with something. All those basic questions that arise growing up as a child in a family and as an adult living in a culture.
1: You, you use the word trauma in connection with, for, uh, for its own childhood um, and then generalize it out. Um, uh, to me, it seemed a slightly peculiar word to use, and, and I wondered, mm. again, whether you might tell us a little more about that. Yes,
2: I mean, I wanted, I think, I mean, now you say it, I wanted to um, convey the sense that trauma is ordinary not exceptional. That childhood is intrinsically traumatic. Um, it's not traumatic necessarily as the Holocaust was traumatic, but it is traumatic. So it's the, the attempt, I think, is to normalize something that's been, um, I think, idealized. And also to recycle an idea in a different context. So that I think that, I don't think Freud Freud was traumatized, whatever this means, excessively, because of course by definition of trauma is excessive. But I think that Freud was very aware of the disorientating effects of disruptions of continuity. And of growing up in a family where people had experiences that were in excess of their capacity to digest, metabolize. Now that may be true of everybody in some ways, but it seems to me at least possible to imagine the Jews of Freud's parents' generation um, actually, their lives being, some of their lives, being really quite a struggle, and that they were continuously assaulted by rules, standards, languages that they were not entirely a fair with and would have been very ambivalent with and would have been unable to do very much about their ambivalence.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm, I'm looking at this, there's a clock behind your shoulder, I don't know if you know this, but I suddenly was aware of it, and I thought we might move on, because sure. you then take Freud to Paris, and this, this becomes, I think it's Paris next week, it becomes a defining moment, yeah. his, his time in Paris with Charcot, and um, the way in which that then... Um, Combines with his separation from the woman who is his fiancée, Martha, and um, his discovery of what can be done with hysteria. His what you say is his giving up of science in order to move towards uh, medicine and a medical model of of shaping one's life, if you like. Because we're still in in biography here. So. Let's talk about Charcot, first of all. I mean, is Charcot somebody that Freud idealizes? I mean, you you present him as such,
2: but... Well, the problem with with idealization is the question is what's it being matched against. Um, As though there is a normal Charcot that we could all have a consensual view of and an idealized one that we might disagree about. I think Freud was absolutely entranced by Charcot. He was fascinated by him. He'd never met anybody like this before. Um,
1: I'm uh, I'm charmed by him too, I mean, no, think. Um
2: and the accounts of Charcot are extraordinary. So that whatever was going on, um, it was as though Freud discovered a new version of himself in relation to this man.
1: So uh, we should probably just say who Charcot is, I suddenly thought we haven't done that. Um, so Jean Martin Charcot, great French neurologist, uh the Napoleon of the neuroses, <laughs> to whom Freud goes as a, as a student, really, mm. um, to seek knowledge um, for, what, six, eight months, is yeah. it? Right, six, right. eight months? <laughs> um, please, sorry, go on. And and well, I just, entranced I, by I,
2: I think that one of the things that got to Freud from his account of it is that Charcot was a man who performed himself, that it was very, very theatrical. So this was not about reticence, modesty, it was about um, sort of having the courage of eccentricity and having a sense of entitlement. And I think that what got to Freud most was this man's freedom to speak as though he could say what he wanted and to speak with immense authority and with uh, apparently genuine generosity and tolerance and so on. That, that <coughs> even though people were intimidated by, Sh- by Charcot, Freud didn't feel it was Charcot's intention to intimidate people. So he represented, I think, a genial form of being a great public intellectual. And I think that was very, very appealing to Freud. I also think that Freud was genuinely moved by Charcot's wish to help the people he was seeing. And I think he was, if we can speak like this, (coughs) unconsciously ambivalent about what Charcot was doing with his patients. That is to say, the question of how much they were being exploited and used as circus animals and how much he was genuinely engaging with their suffering. Um, So I think that it's as though... Charcot was a sort of um, enormous evocative object for Freud. He really made him think and feel things. Um, and that this, this was formative. It took a very, very long time to unpack itself, maybe his whole life. But that he definitely, Charcot called up something new in Freud.
1: What, what we haven't, of course, said is the kind of character you set Freud up to have, which I think is probably close to the truth, what do I know? <laughs> I mean, this this young man who's incredibly enthusiastic about literature mm. um, and is a dreamer, but is also somebody who's made a decision to be uh, a scientist and uh, a person of experiment and mm. uh, hard laboratory work. And then Shako enters as this new kind of character. Yeah, a new kind science. of scientist too. Yeah. Um, so, but what about the hysterics, and and how does that play into Freud's um, later or first book um, on hysteria? Because Schack's hysterics are are not quite the same hysterics that Freud writes about. Although the model of Schack's hysteria travelled to Austria as well, as we know from other historians, that people did perform their symptoms in the way Schack's hysterics performed their mm. symptoms. Um,
2: I don't feel knowledgeable enough, really, to be able to talk about this. The only thing that does strike me is what you've intimated, which is that Charcot was, as it were, allowing his hysterics to perform in public. And this was not, I mean, Freud's way was very, very private. Now, you might say this is an implicit communication. That is to say, Freud goes back to Vienna and starts doing a very, very, very private form of treatment of these so-called hysterics. And I think, in a way, what you see is, um, perhaps inevitably, when somebody is trying to d- elaborate a diagnostic category, which is, you know, that the it's the unassimilated facts that lead people on. So that Freud is all the time, inevitably, because he's willing to listen, Finding things that don't entirely fit with the story Schachter's told him, and so what Freud is doing, I think, is is putting um, explicitly and implicitly an emphasis on listening. Now Charcot teaches him to look; Freud gets very interested in listening, and so I think one of the differences. There are two differences here, and they're related. One is to do with privacy, and the other is to do with the verbal exchange. And Freud, um, treating the his 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 patients called hysterics as though they are clearly saying profoundly important things in disguised form. That they're not bad at talking, they're very, very good at talking. But people have been very, very bad at listening. So nobody's a bad talker in this story, and that's one of the great things about it. There are only bad listeners. And that seems to be p- wonderful and p- brilliant.
1: Mm, absolutely. I mean, I, I suspect that's part of the Jewish tradition too.
2: And uh, well, I hope you're right. Um, I mean, there are areas of our lives where it doesn't look as though it's entirely true. No, yet. not
1: <laughs> I don't mean because of the move from gaze to ear, but, but simply because Jehovah speaks, he's not seen. Mm. And, um, yeah. you know, Christianity is visible in its not A lot of visuals. Yeah. Um, which I adore, but, but, you know, I mean, I don't adore, actually, that's the wrong word. Yeah, I take it back. <laughs> but I look at it with great, um, interest and passion. Um, <laughs> i I think one of the things that you say in the book, which um, it 's one of the few things that I actually went ah oh, he 's not really saying that, is he because I think the book is wonderful, but you do say that um, psychoanalysis is a kind of a homosexual game i 've got it written down here if you want me to find yeah, the outro
2: um, the quote
1: you but you say it's it 's boys talking to each other yeah. about the body of girls, yeah, yeah, um, right. not quite like that.
2: Yeah, yeah, now, so
1: I, I would like to just take a little pause and um, hear your argument about this. because Argument, I argument, altogether. I think,
2: would be an idealization here. Um, <laughs> what I wanted to say was, because it struck me as interesting and maybe true, is that in the early days of psychoanalysis, we have men talking about women that disturb them. Now, obviously, this is not an original thought, but it is quite an important one, I think so when I say at the beginning of the book um, psychoanalysis is a homosexual artefact obviously it's a provocative remark deliberately (laughs) directed at you personally Um, (laughs) but, but, but also I said it not only because it was provocative but because it seems to me there is some interesting possible truth in it which is that here are men talking almost exclusively together about women and about women who really disturb them, who they don't know what to do with. Well, that seems to me to be a very ordinary experience, if you see what I mean. I mean, <laughs> this is why men go to pubs. I mean, it's not, a, it's not a revelation, this, but it seems to me quite interesting that out of conversations like this grew something called psychoanalysis. So uh, what I want to do, is, I suppose, is alert people, if that's the right word. Uh, let me put this the other way around. Um if psychoanalysis is about one thing and it isn't it's about everybody's terror of their own misogyny now I think including Freud, women and obviously everybody's obviously. so I think Freud in inventing psychoanalysis in this way was implicitly alluding to this which is these women who were so in burdock almost disturbed really troubled these male doctors what do you do? What do you do with them? Or what do you do to them or what do you do for them? Or what is the right phrase? Well, I think those are really interesting and good questions. I think psychoanalysis would have been very different if it had been invented by women, say. And it's a hard thing to imagine actually. An or- a counterfactual origins of psychoanalysis story. Where two women if we just take the analogy of Fleece, say and Freud, two women get together and start talking about these men they're seeing professionally that they really don't get, that they're really disturbed by and baffled by. And the men are clearly suffering. What can we do? I think it's almost unimaginable.
1: Well, historically it's unimaginable because that was the texture of the no, times. So you course, didn't have any yeah, women doctors or a few then. So, so it's very hard to, to make that other kind. I mean, you know, if you're talking about something as a, as a discipline which is mm. what psychoanalysis becomes, um, and you're talking about a moment in history, there are only certain possibilities that history allows.
2: I know that, but okay, I, that's what, what I mean by calling it counterfactual. I mean, I know that that wasn't. it isn't as though this is a repressed repertoire, that this was impossible at the time. We can still imagine it, though. In other words, we can imagine what that could be like. Um, but do you think
1: there wouldn't have been hysteria if women were talking about women?
2: Well, the, the... I mean, I do that no, counterfactual. No, yeah, but I, the problem for me really talking about this is that I don't know what a is. You see, I mean, I can re- Obviously, I've read the books and so on, but I don't... I, fi- I feel very uneasy talking in this diagnostic way because I really feel I don't know who I'm talking about.
1: But the women that you don't understand and who frighten you and who you feel misogynistic about, do you think women would have found them
2: I don't know. Like I really don't know. So I imagine some would and some wouldn't. I think it's hard to know, but I would imagine there would be a very, very different sense of what was going on, mm-hmm. at its most minimal. And it seems to me of interest that Freud and Breuer and Freud, well, Freud and Breuer were really interested in these women's life stories. That they really thought, there's, that, you know, that this is not something that, as a were, is in your genes. This comes out of a narratable history. Mm-hmm. Well, that in itself is telling you a lot, I think, about what's implicitly going on here. As in, um, you know, it's like what Winnicott said, it's an environmental deprivation disease, so to speak. Um, so what they were discovering, and of course it's difficult now not to see it through the things one knows subsequently, or things one knows, but what they were discovering was that these women's position in their families of origin had an impossibility attached to it. There were things that they were feeling, saying, communicating that simply couldn't be heard or recognized or assimilated. So people, these women, if they were a group, were inventing a new language for new kinds of experience. But so far, it had been called craziness or illness or hysteria Mm -hmm. or whatever. And then it could evolve into something else when it could be heard differently, metabolized differently, responded to differently. And that seems to me to be a great thing.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, you say hysteria is a solution to something from the past.
2: Yeah. Which yeah. is which is.
1: Yeah, this is self-cure. A, a, yes, it, I mean, it, it's a kind of um, putting backwards of reminiscences.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Transferring over. Exactly. Um, okay. I, I, you know, I just thought I would bring that up. Um, <laughs> you say in this. We're not covering the entire book, as you can well imagine, but just bringing out the, the some of the points. Um, when you move, when you bring Freud back to Vienna, um, and he uh, writes studies in hysteria, this marks one moment in life. And then the next moment, as you have it, is Freud begins to dream um, in this making of Freud, this becoming of Freud. Um, and the, this this is a very different kind of moment. Mm. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that, or do you want me to ask you direct questions? Or tell us
2: something. And no, ask me direct and, questions.
1: Well, okay, direct questions. He begins to dream. Um, you position that in terms of his relationship with Fleece. Um, so tell me about the relationship with Fleece, or tell us about the relationship with Fleece, and why it and and how um, it allows the 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 growth of mm. this movement. I mean, it's the dream book.
2: It's difficult, to obviously, to know very much about this, but it seems as though Freud... Retrospectively, it looks as though Freud is using Fleece as a transference object. In other words, it's as though, um, unconsciously, Freud is looking for a recipient for um, things he's begun to think and feel and dream. And Fleece, for all sorts of reasons, seems to be a good recipient Partly because he's sort of balmy and, and therefore says a combination of nothing very interesting and then rather wacky things, which it sounds to be, it sounds like what Freud was wanting. Plus at that point, they were in a state of sort of unconditional love with each other. So it was very, very, in the best... Through letters. Yeah, through letters, exactly. So it was in the best sense idealized because the medium was one of apparently unconditional acceptance and genuine curiosity, like two people in love, they're endlessly interesting to each other. And even if they aren't, actually, they behave as though they are. And so that, that works in and of itself. And I think that Freud, it's an advantage for Freud that Fleece is far away. Uh, so that it's done through correspondence. He's a very absent object. Uh, he's somebody that Freud actually doesn't know very well. But he's somebody who really admires Freud. Really admires Freud, and I think Freud, at that age, really needed to be back needed to be backed. He needed somebody who, as it were, treated him as over as a genius and fleece did that um, and I think fleece was in my account fleece was very important to Freud because he was on the border line between being legitimate and being a quack and I think that it, you know one of the many great things that Freud did was he um, you know in trying to create a sort of respectable science of the un- respectable. I think he, with Fleece, psychoanalysis moved into the realm in which we really don't know whether people are the real thing. And that people can be both... Well, the question becomes, what legitimates somebody's view, Somebody's speaking? So when Fleece, for example, has lots of wacky ideas. One is, for example, that men have periods. And Cycles. Cy- cycles, yes. <laughs> um, And on the one hand you think Freud is really interested in people who are able to have odd ideas. And on the other hand he's wanting to know people who have reliably respectable, legitimate ideas. So Fleece becomes um, the object through which he can elaborate um, his anxiety about respectability. Because... They're out out there. Um, Because... I think that it's important that, that people are very ambivalent about Fleece, because of course they'll become very ambivalent about Freudian psychoanalysis. <laughs> Come
3: back.
2: Is this everything? Retu- everything you deny returns to my side. Um, so I think that I think that Fleece is most important for his uncertain status and the ethos that Freud's working in. That's my guess.
1: I mean, you, you you posit that very, I think, brilliantly uh, against the fact that Fleece is this absent friend with whom he can communicate in this particular mm-hmm. way, against the fact that he's had six children in, in um, eight years, and as we know, living with small children, which also feeds his thought and practice and... Um, mm-hmm. Um, thinking um, is very difficult, and one needs an absent friend <laughs> in a sense. I mean mm. Freud, at this time of course, is also working with children at yeah, the neurological yeah, uh, um, mm. i forgot what it 's called the institute in any case, mm. and so he 's got children everywhere, and then he 's got women who are busy with nappies and everything else um, that is, pertains to children and he 's got he's, this seeing, and he's
2: also seeing women who don 't have children
1: yes, um, in his practice, mm. in his private mm. practice. Mm. So it's it's a very um, I mean this is part of the triangle, isn't it? That yeah, you set it out? is.
2: Yeah, and I want to I mean as you know I want to stress in the book that um, that the most important thing in my view that was going on in Freud's life was that he had six children under you know the ages that they were. In other words, the book also another project the book has consciously is to drop the idea of the great man. And think not that to say that there aren't people who do remarkable things, but that everybody's living in a context, a family, or something. They're living in a world, and so when Freud's writing in the project about the the, the crying infant and so on, that he really is—he's got six crying infants, um, and and a wife, even though they've got a maid, who's bringing up all these children. I mean, this is really this is a real hot house, and.
1: It's and a laboratory, you might say, of the family.
2: <laughs> well, in a way, it's a laboratory. But, uh, you know, you can see how you might take refuge in thinking it's a laboratory. You know, what can you do with this so that you're not swamped by it? I'm not saying Freud felt that, but he could have felt it. But, basically, he's got all these children. And at the same time, he's coming up with all these ideas about childhood and about the significance of childhood and about communication and nurture and so on. Yeah.
1: I, I, I'm going to press this on because I just want to give the arc of the book and then open Mm -hmm. it up to questions. I'll be coming to you in a minute. I hope you're saving up. Um, So the the dream work section, if you like, is is, is the crucial um, bit in the middle of this book, because then you move on um, to um, psychoanalysis comes out. And this is actually about the making of psychoanalysis in the world, and it's coming into being. And I think I mean, I just want to bring up one point of possible um, discussion in this, and this is to do with your view of Freud um, as a psychoanalyst, because basically you're interested in him only up until 1905, 6, and then after that um, you feel he becomes a stodgy, institutional, uh, uninteresting man who's written all his major work, or certainly written everything that is necessary for the making of no, psychoanalysis. Wait, you
3: could
2: okay, okay. Interrupt. Okay. All right, interrupt me. Okay. No, I don't think that. Oh,
1: okay. and, I,
2: and I don't say that in the Was book. that a
1: misinterpretation, then?
2: <laughs> well, the, the point is not, for me, that Freud said everything interesting or said everything by 1906. It, it's different, and the experience... I mean, you don't know this, because nobody does unless they know it. The reason the book ended in 19... <laughs> the reason the book ended in 1906 was because I wrote the last bit, and then I thought, I've written the book I want to write. So I'd finished my book at that point. And that came out of, this, you know, the small speculation in the book about what psychoanalysis might be like if Freud had died at 50. Um, and the thing that struck me most was... But, of course, he wouldn't, preside, he wouldn't be presiding over his own science. Now, I think, as I imagine most people here do, that lots of... The, some of the most interesting for was written, of course, in those years, those later years. It's not that I wanted to discredit that writing at all, but I wanted to do two things. One is, let's imagine what psychoanalysis might have been like with those texts, which, after all, Lacan was very interested in, so I'm not be really interested in those texts. But also, I wanted to avoid the next pitfall of biography, which is, as it were, thumbnail sketches of Jung and Ferenczi. In other words, once you get to 906, there are loads of people involved in the story. And I didn't feel I wanted to, or could, do justice to these people. And that's to do with me, if you see what I mean. Um, so there were two reasons. But the strongest one was, as it were, internal, which is, at a certain point, I felt I'd written the book I wanted to write.
1: Mm. But it, But is that because you actually do, as you see in the book, prefer the Freud who is the writer. I mean, you say in your Paris, there's a wonderful Paris Review interview with Adam, which goes on for pages and pages, and is is, is fabulous. And one of the things, um, which I should probably look at so I can quote properly, but one one of the things it, it reflects on is that you came to psychoanalysis, through reading and um, it was by reading first Jung I think and then Winnicott Mm. and then Freud and when you read Freud you said yes I recognize this this is this is you know, this is what I know. This is me, <laughs> and and then decided to become an mm. analyst. And um, you're very interested in Freud, the writer. I mean, as I am, it's not it's not criticism. It's just one particular view of mm. who Freud um, mm. is and what is really crucially important about him. Mm. And for you, it is the writing, the dreaming, um, um, mm. Freud, not the Freud who. Um, Thought of himself as a doctor and a scientist, the medical, mm. you know, the good doctor, if you like, as some of his patients mm. call him, and the scientist. And, and I think I, my, my slight kind of worry about this is that your understanding of the word scientist seems to me to be very now, as opposed to very then. <laughs> um, in, in that I don't think there was, a, you know, a sense of two cultures, necessarily, yeah, 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 in quite yeah, so strong a yeah, yeah. way in Freud's Vienna. Yeah. Um, and uh, that, that, in a sense, you vilify the word. I mean, you know, I'm not saying here that I'm a great defender of science, but I am. I mean, I do think that the pursuits of science, whatever the, the practices might engender, um, the pursuit is a, is a formidable pursuit, and probably not all that different from the kind of um, mm. thinking that, that allows Freud to write so well.
2: So I don't think. I mean, obviously, I'm not the authority on my own book. I don't think there's vilifying of science in the book, nor do I feel that. What the book says, from my point of view, is Freud's very ambivalent about the scientific method that he's been educated in, and that psychoanalysis, as he practices it more and more, extends that scientific method. I mean, clearly, Freud wanted to be a scientist, and you don't have to choose. I mean, you know, scientists can write after all. Um, it's not that bit. It's that I think what I wanted to talk about in the book was how difficult it was for Freud to fit psychoanalysis, to go on being able to use the science he learned to explain what he was finding out in the psychoanalysis that he'd evolved. That's all. Because I really don't know enough about science or the history of science. I don't feel at all anti-science. Imagine living in a world without anaesthetics. I mean, you know, so it would be crazy to be anti-science. But I do think it's interesting that Freud as a boy is really interested in literature and ancient history and languages becomes uh, a doctor partly he says against his wishes, so it's hard to know quite what that means but he goes on saying, and he says a lot at the end of his life I didn't want to be a doctor I've got mixed feelings about being a doctor, I'm not a very good doctor, you know all this stuff um, and indeed says he thinks that analysts needn't be scientists or medical people and all this stuff. Well, I think Freud's trying to do something very difficult, which is he's trying to keep alive his kind of, um, if want a better word, artistic affinities and his scientific inclinations. I mean, clearly he believes in consensual empirical science. He's a Darwinian. It's not that it, it, the choice was Don Quixote or the origin of species. The point was both of the things moved him. And he wanted, and psychoanalysis in a way is caught... In the crossfire of these different fictions or whatever they are. So that's what I want to suggest. Not that um, he had to choose, but in not choosing he kept on evolving something that was very interesting, because it could include Don Quixote in The Origin of Species.
1: Okay. Um, we're going to turn over to you in just one more minute. I want to ask Adam one more question. Um, so please bring these to me. The last question is really to do about the status of doctoring or medicine in Freud's life and oh sorry um, can you hear me, am I going quiet um, the status of doctoring the status of medicine in Freud's thought, thinking, life can you just say a little bit about that to open it up for people well, to well I think the dismaying
2: thing for I don't know if it's entirely dismaying but the, the tradition of psychoanalysis that I was that I love and like and was educated in took it for granted that if you took someone into analysis, you looked after them. It was a form of caring for them in a non-sentimental way, but (laughs) it was was that. Freud seems, although my fantasy is, and this could be a wish, clearly a kind person who cared about other people. But he seems to me is excessively unwilling to be a doctor. He protests too much. It's a a bit like he protests too much about biography. He wants to tell us a lot that doctoring isn't really his thing, that healing isn't really his thing. And I sort of think, well, it should be, if you do this. Not that you've got to make everybody better, or everybody's going to be helped, or of that at all, but that there's something fundamental about it that is not being in the laboratory. This is me now, I'm not saying this is Freud. Um, and I think Freud, temperamentally, was very, very anxious about getting caught up with other people. Because he knew so much about the contagion of feeling, he wanted <laughs> not to feel it. And I think one way of understanding classical psychoanalysis is that it's a, um, it's the attempt to ensure that nobody gets muddled up with anybody else. <laughs> and people are in fact muddled up with each other. And that's, I what, <laughs> that's what psychoanalysis evolved at its best into. That's what I think.
1: That's that's wonderful, Adam. Thank you. Um, all right, questions from you. Um, we've got 20 minutes, half an hour. Um, so, there's a question back there. Yes, could you stand up and, and speak loudly, primarily because I'm deaf, but everybody else might be. It's, little... uh, it's about the title of the book,
2: uh, you know, you said becoming and making. Those are all present, continuous sure. You know, so...
0: It is not complete. Yeah.
3: Becoming Freud is a continuous art.
0: not just making psychoanalysis. So he's, he's not that. I mean,
2: coming to die is the question. Where, where is the, I mean, do you see the end? Do you see the horizon of becoming Freud, Freud and making psychoanalysis? Where, when is it going to be made? What make it to be finished? Well, what makes Freud Freud so we it, basically? well it'll never be made and it'll never be finished it may disappear because people lose interest in it but you could never know whether it was made or not because people so far have gone on making it so the point about these verbs is that it's an ongoing practice and it'll be an ongoing practice until it isn't and it's hard to know when that is but no one, I think, in their right minds would be saying, right, that's it now, we've, we've, this is psychoanalysis. Even, though, of course, people are always saying, this is psychoanalysis and this isn't. But we know people are saying that because they, they know it isn't true. It couldn't be. But we can say, that's
0: Freud. We can say? I mean, we, can say that's psycho- we cannot say, this psychoanalysis, but we should be able to say, becoming Freud. And,
2: uh, well, I'm not and sure. I, I can see your point logically that if you're becoming Freud, you should be able to become him. But I think the real point that I intend is that he was always becoming Freud and then he died. Because that's what we're all doing. It's not an interesting point, it's just a sort of ordinary point. But that I did want to stress the idea that this was um, an ongoing process. And it was it was the enemy of having the last word. In psychoanalysis, no one ever has the last word. Yes. Stand up. No, no, it's fine. No, just don't, don't stand up. My
4: question is in two parts. Um, I wondered what you thought Freud would think of the peace oh. of the um, peace and love rainbow family uh, communities that came out of the 1960s. And the second part of my question is, I wondered what you thought of the approach to relationships that people in those communities have uh, in terms of the kind of problems that I, I imagine people are, are, are bringing to the consulting room when they talk to you.
3: Mm.
2: I think peace and love are really good ideas. Um, <laughs> I also think that Freud would have hated this. And I think he would have hated it in a very ordinary sense, but in very intelligently, which is, he would take for granted that people are ambivalent about each other. Mm. So there's no way you're going to eradicate war and hate. Um, that those are inevitable uh, constituents; Those are, Freud would say, structural to being human in relationship with others. Um, but I do think it's a real limitation of psychoanalysis, that it's the problem of all essentialist theories. If you know where you're starting from, it limits where you can go. So if, for example, you believe in the id, you end up saying things like, where id was, their ego shall be. In other words, you constrain the ends of the project. So anybody who believes in or is interested in psychoanalysis can't believe in an an ambivalent state of mind. Now I really regret this because I think we should have all this stuff at least both ways. I think everybody's ambivalent about everything and we should be able to imagine what it might be like not to be and not treat that simply as denial, splitting, you know, because obviously there's an elaborate psychoanalytic language that will say to you there's no such thing as a free lunch so to speak, and I think we—I think that the risk is that it's as though psychoanalysis has, as it were, seen through the 60s. Well, lots of things about the 60s I loved and love and still value. So I think it's much more about seeing how compatible the vocabularies are and where they aren't, if you said what I mean. Because as a psychoanalyst, there are certain things you can't possibly believe. And yet psychoanalysis says there's always a question about why you can't possibly believe something. Do you see what I mean? So, for me, the thing about psychoanalysis is, it sort of invites you to think more extensively, more elaborately, possibly more inclusively. I think that doesn't answer your question, the look on your face. <laughs> do you want to, just briefly, do you want to ask me a more specific question, which I'll answer more briefly?
4: Um, I'll have to think. Okay. Okay. That's okay. <coughs>
3: first I want to ask your indulgence. Please don't treat this as a hostile question. I was very struck by how literary of Freud you are giving us. And I've spent quite a lot of my time trying to think about the theoretician Freud. Now I'm speaking now about Onaphasia, the project for scientific psychology, idigo, superego. You could do this as easily as I can, and I'm just wondering how, in your own, if necessary, private, because I haven't read your book, uh, picture of Freud, you uh, integrate the, as I put it, your literary Freud, with the theoretician, and uh, whether you th- believe at all, and I'm ambivalent about this, this edifice of theories takes us anywhere or it actually takes us somewhere we don't want to go as if it was chemistry or physics or something.
2: Well <clears throat> I'm um, I'm the age that means that in my sort of educated lifetime so called theory appeared. So I spent the ages of sort of fourteen to twenty one reading old style literary criticism which claimed to have no theory in it at all. And then suddenly there was something called theory. So you go to the literary criticism section of bookshops, they were all theory. Now, one thing that then puzzled me, and that still in a way does, which is the distinction in a way. Because the the theoreticians that I liked were writers that I liked. In other words, I thought of this stuff as not written with ideas, but written with sentences. So, Bart may be a theoretician, but he's a writer that I really loved and so read. I didn't read him as a theoretician. So it seems to me it may be confounding to 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 counterpoint a literary Freud and another kind of Freud. What I mean by the literary Freud is simply someone who's interested in writing and actually speaking, somebody who's interested in language, not somebody who could, you know, allude to Hamlet. I don't think that's literary. That's literary in a kind of connoisseurship sense. I think literary just means being interested in words. And I think there's a literary Freud in the sense that Freud want, explicitly says he wanted to be a writer and writes, imma- to me, amazingly, interestingly, and evocatively, and informatively. Now, there are so-called theoreticians who do that, but it's a question of taste and sensibility. I think, you know, I think there's room for lots of Freuds. Just like there's, you know, if you like certain theories, read them, and don't bother with the rest. You know, I'm not remotely interested in neuroanatomy. That doesn't mean I think it's wrong, it just means it doesn't itch, I'm unmoved by it
3: saying
2: that the theoretical concepts I get are no part of your interest in you? No, I they they are a bit and, and but I would never say that I had a theoretical interest in Freud, so I wouldn't know what that meant. i d I'm interested in Freud I like reading him. That's the real experience. I like reading him and I find that I go on like reading him. Now it may stop, in which case I'll lose interest in him. But he's gone on being interesting to me. So that's it. Now in that there there are I gather things called theories. And some of them, of course, I can recount to you. But I don't. That's not what interests me. What interests me is the sentences and the evocative effect of the reading.
1: But you're a practitioner. What? But you're a practitioner of psychoanalysis as well. So what is it in Freud's mm. literariness which informs your practice?
2: But that's the thing, and that's why I want to come back to what you said before. Because the interesting thing about Freud, of course, is that you can that Freud's a writer, but you can practice Freud. You can't practice Shakespeare or practice Henry James. So, for me, the interesting thing was that here's a writer that I love and like in the way I... I mean, the lots of writers I like more, but I do like Freud. And yet, there's a practice here. It actually... One of the things it's doing is it's telling you how to do something. And what I like about Freud, and that's why I refer to him in the book as a visionary pragmatist, is that he's really interested in doing things. He's really interested in practice, in solving problems, in all that stuff. And he's interested in dreams, and things that are more meditative, less um, discernibly instrumental. So it's though, for me, Freud is, a kind of, um, is the point where lots of these different traditions and ways of thinking meet. And Freud is therefore very interestingly um, muddled and confused and clear about all this stuff. But, but what I do like is that, what I like about Freud's writing is that I can use it. I can use it in a job that I think is really worth doing. Do you, do you
1: go back to him, to read him,
2: before yes, but, your work? No, but, well, but in the dream work sense, see, that for me it's all just, um, you know, it's what for the dream day. All reading is the dream day. And then you see what you do. So the way to learn psychoanalysis, to do it, is to be psychoanalysed and to practice it. And then you read. And you do, And if you believe in dream work, you don't know quite where the reading goes. But you do know if you're reading psychoanalysis as an instruction manual, you're not doing it properly. But if you just read psychoanalysis evocatively and then just see what happens, then you might be on to something.
1: Yes, over there.
0: Hi. Um, You said in uh, an interview for a New York radio station that um, Shakespeare was a better psychoanalyst than Freud. Oh, did I?
3: (laughs) Okay. What was
2: the
1: question? <laughs> well, I was going to ask. No, what, what was what was the question of the interviewer that he said that response? To
0: I think I think the interviewer just um, it was about other writers, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, and yeah. you and yeah. you sort of said, oh, it's better, yeah. sort of, and um, and I just wondered what you meant by that. Well,
2: I'll tell you what that comes out of. Though this is not to justify the mind. Um, when I was younger, I was very interested in a literary critic called Harold Bloom. Bloom talks and writes, as you may well know, but. Talks a lot about, in, a, in sometimes rather a balmy way, but an interesting way, about all of Freud coming out of Shakespeare. Now of course that's ridiculous, because they're you know, they a different sentence, but nevertheless, you can sort of see what he might mean. Now what I should have said, or what I want to say now, is that uh, it's as and can be more useful to your practice as a psychoanalyst to read Shakespeare as it is to read Freud.
3: <laughs>
2: that's my experience. And that if you didn't read Shakespeare, and you were psychoanalyst. I think you would have impaired development. That's what my if you read
1: Euripides
2: or no? No, Gander, yes. I don't mean only Shakespeare. I mean there's lots of them, but Shakespeare is particularly interesting. I think. There's a very interesting thing. There's a critic, uh, an American literary critic called Harry Berger, who said he, I had taught Shakespeare for some thirty years. And I suddenly realised that I'd spent my whole time sort of judging these characters in the plays. When actually what Shakespeare is so interesting about is the way people judge themselves in their speech. And it dawned on me that the way to read Shakespeare is not to be making these um, sort of Olympian moral judgments about these characters, but actually listen to the way in which Shakespeare's writing in a way that enables people to tell other people what they think of themselves. Now, that seems to me to be very, very interesting and true. So that's the kind of link.
1: Have you had any patients who speak with the same, um, I don't know, linguistic genius, if I dare use that term, as Shakespeare? I oh. mean,
2: who are as, 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 as well, interesting
1: to interpret?
2: All of them sometimes. I mean, Shakespeare's not some sort of oracle of speech. It's it's ordinary language, as well as being extraordinary, as ordinary language is. And the reason it's, if it goes on being interesting, is because Shakespeare is. It's it's. Well, everybody speaks Shakespeare. They don't always know they do, but everybody speaks Shakespeare as well as lots of other people and things.
1: Any other questions? Ah, yes, back there.
0: Um, you mentioned at the beginning that the book is in a series called Jewish Lives. And at one point earlier on, you talked about um, teasing out between um, submitting and cooperating. And I just wondered, in in Freud's life, my understanding is that one of the things that he did not allow Martha to do was light candles on a Friday night. And I just wanted to get your take on the extent to which that reflected the rest of his attitude to Jewish living, and how that compares with the um, portrayal you gave of him earlier on as, as being very caring. So I understand there can be a conflict, but I was just curious about your feeling.
2: I think I, mean, I think it's very, very hard to tell. I think that Freud um, says at one point that he was, this isn't quite, this isn't how he put it verbatim, but that he was glad to have married the daughter of an Orthodox Jewish family and to be, as it were, converting her.
1: But he didn't succeed.
2: But he didn't succeed. So you can can kind of draw your own conclusions about that, whatever that might mean. Um, And of course, there's you know there's lots of gossip about Freud as a tyrannical, dogmatic, etc. And then there are other versions of a man who's more genial. I just don't feel that I know, and I don't think anybody knows what goes on in a marriage, at least all the people are in it.
1: That's crucial. You can all tweet that now.
3: <laughs>
1: Any other questions? Yes. So, um, wait for the mic if you. So, making you it's run. It's coming. But this is for everyone else in the room.
2: Reading Thank your you. book, uh,
4: that's a, a shameful episode for me because. Um, I was really intrigued by your claim about the Freud living with six children as the most important experience. Mm-hmm. And I said to myself, but hold on, Phillips just doesn't talk about all those children that Freud saw at the children's hospital. And so I started to do, do some digging. And virtually all the biographies don't talk about this. I've never seen anyone except for a very interesting Italian psychoanalyst who writes papers about this. Nobody seems to have read those documents. And it's because Freud put them off reading them. He kind of dismissed it. Mm. He made sure that it was all excluded. If, in fact, if you look at the neurological literature, it turns out that Freud is one of the great founders of child neurology. And his monograph on infantile cerebral paralysis is one of the standard monographs of the last 100, 110 years. Still... Child neurologists think he was a genius. He would have been a professor, right? Mm. Just on the basis of that one Mm. 350-page book, which I've now read much more of than I ever had done before, and that's the shameful thing. It's full of case histories. Freud worked with children three days a week from 1886 Mm. to 1897, and he wrote 350 pages, definitive text, So, what is that experience about when it comes to thinking about the making of a psychoanalyst? Mm. Working with children whose prognosis is uniformly very bad. Most neurologists then and still now will say nobody comes out of that in any kind of good shape and they're going to die quite young. That's what neurology is usually about. And Freud would have been an expert on dying young, children dying young. What does that have to say about the making of the psychoanalyst? It's a new question for me, but I wanted to place it alongside your emphasis on... Freud living with six children
2: as he's making yeah. psychoanalysis. Do you remember, I mean, you, sh- you should write that, write about that. But do you remember that he says in a letter to Fleece, words the effect of, um, you know, it'd be wonder- wonderful having these children if it wasn't for how much fear there is involved in it. And he talks very, it's only a moment in a letter, but he, what's clear is that one of the things that's happening is that these children are frightening the living daylights out of Freud as they do with their, for their parents. So that that link must be very, very important. And it's a lot of time spent. And also, if you, I mean, I know this just from a limited experience of working with children, a combination of children who are dying of cancer and children with neurological problems, which is that in though because of the very desperation of the situation and the misery of it, people say things, parents say things, children say things. extraordinarily. extraordinary things. So if one wanted a sort of induction into one version of this work, a pretty terrible version, then working with children who are dying or who have really b- bad prognoses is really extraordinary, because, well, because they have very different app- children have very different apprehension of what it is to die than adults do, and that of course their parents are absolutely immediately and totally involved. But I think it would be a really interesting thing to write about. And it's an amazing omission, isn't it? Yeah. Do you have an idea about why... If one was speaking psychoanalytically, why it might have been omitted? Given it's not... I mean, most people know that the basic fact. Jones, Jones gets
4: it right, as usual. I mean, it's all... you know there, Enough is in Jones for you to spot it. Uh, Gay is amazing. He just does not mention the fact that Freud was a child neurologist. Mm.
3: Um...
4: Which is an extraordinary yeah, it does. Yeah. Um But I, 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 I think the idea of there being a pre-psychoanalysis, which was determined yeah. by Freud's own hand and his own demarcation of what is inside and what is outside, has a lot to answer for. Yeah. But th- that's not the whole story by any
2: means. But, but the fact of pediatrics coming before psychoanalysis... Mm-hmm. That seems to be the thing, as it is with Winnicott.
1: But it's interesting what I was going to say. So mm-hmm. first comes Winnicott, then comes becoming Freud, um, for Freud as well. Do you, we're coming to an end now, and so I, I will take chance privilege here and just ask you the, the last question. Do you think Freud could come back and write a becoming Adam
2: Phillips? No.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> By now, I mean, no, he won't come back. <laughs>
1: Okay, Uh, Adam's book is for sale just outside there. I'm sure he'd be very happy to sign copies. Um, Maybe not very happy, but happy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Thank you all for coming, and um, thank you, Adam, for a wonderful book.